You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Welcome to Meal 3, Redemption. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. The Bible begins and ends with meals. Some of God's first words to humanity are an invitation to eat. The first conflict in the Bible is over a forbidden fruit. Jesus' first miracle was at a catering crisis at a wedding. And his last meal was a symbolic laden meal that explained why he came and the purpose of his life. And it's that meal that we get to think more about in today's meal. Uh, We're in the third meal of the gospel in four meals. And we said that the gospel in headline is that God saves us from our sin in Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. And it's that Jesus that we get to explore more of today. As I said before in the first meal, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. In fact, as I said in the, in the meal that's just gone by, in our sin meal, I was growing up to be a professional golf player. I pursued golf with my whole life. And so I never needed convincing that I was a sinner. That is... I pursued something that was apart from and separate to the God who made this world and whose image was stamped on me. Come at a time when I was reassessing my life ambitions of being a professional golfer. Some of my friends uh, from church and high school at that point invited me along to their youth group. I was enthralled, although I still thought Christians were dumb and stupid, that they lived life for a different reason than I did. They treated me with kindness, uh, with real friendship. Uh, They didn't treat me competitively as the world that I kind of grew up in. They lived life for a different reason, and I got to see that on show. Soon enough, I was consistently challenged and confronted by the person of Jesus, And I was confronted by the question whether he truly lived and died. If he did, then I knew that I would have to come up with an answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? What do I make of him? Uh, Meals feature heavily in the life of Jesus. Uh, He was a guest at many dinner parties. Uh, Sometimes he was a conversation marker. Uh, Sometimes he was instantaneous, awkward conversation fodder. Uh, At several times, he was actually the caterer and the cook. There was this one time uh, where there was a crowd of around 5,000 and a boy came up to him with five loaves and two fishes and he multiplied them all with 12 basketfuls left over. One of the great historical reasons why we think Jesus had some kind of Asian descent because only Asian parents can over cater by that amount and yet also keep on force feeding uh, their guests because they're still growing. At times, uh, Jesus was an awkward conversationalist. There was one time that he was having dinner 
with a very high up religious official, and then a prostitute comes in halfway through the meal, thanks Jesus for an encounter the previous night, which is not really clear on what exactly happened. She wets his feet, cleans them, and then leaves. Whether caterer or initiator of awkward silences, Jesus must have been a great conversationalist. He was always having dinners and parties with those who would never come to them, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. And Jesus' final meal with his disciples was a symbol-laden meal at the time of the Jewish Passover, a meal in which Jesus' life and clarity would take on new meaning. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he gave thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until this day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. It's worth recapping our points so far. In meal one in creation, we saw that God created this world. Uh, we saw that he created us, that his image was stamped in us because we are God's argument for the existence of God. And yet his image on us is also his claim on us. We're his. In the second meal, we saw that sin is not just doing bad things. It's instead of living under and with God, it's living apart from and separate to him. And from that point, the history of the world has been one of chaos, of disintegration, of tragedy. And the Bible from that point on aims to show us the great rescue mission that Jesus was sent on to rescue us and this creation from our sin. God, according to the Bible, does not leave the world in that state. Rather, he begins a rescue mission. And that rescue mission can be summarized in one word, Israel. When modern readers come to the Bible, they're often expecting a book full of general religious truths on, on God in this world. And so sometimes they're actually surprised slash disappointed that when they come to it, it's actually overwhelmingly the history of one nation, of Israel, of its land, its customs, its people, its traditions its events, its landmarks, its fails, its victories. The story begins with Abraham. God chooses this one man in which to bless all the nations. Abraham has children and his descendants form the nation of Israel. Uh, that nation uh, then ends up in Egypt in slavery. And through the mighty hand of God and under the leadership of Moses, they make a daring escape out of Egypt to worship their God. And in a dramatic story of their escape, God's judgment comes down on Egypt. With the firstborn sons of any Egyptian household dying, as the angel of death passed over them. But the angel of death also passed over and spared the firstborns of the houses whom had the blood of the lamb painted on their doorframe. The blood of the lamb protected those houses. That event is the background to the Passover meal that is still celebrated today. Uh, the meal features various references back to that escape from Egypt. Uh, they make 
bread quickly made without yeast in under six minutes because uh, there was no time to let the dough rise. They have bitter herbs on the table to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. They had lamb to represent the lamb that was shed and whose blood was painted on the door frames that protected them. Uh, they would have uh, glasses of red wine, which was drank at various times, either announcing who God was to them and what they were purposed for God. And there was always a spare seat at the table awaiting for the great prophet to come and save them. And we share in some of the aspects of that meal in the meal we share today. See, Israel was given a purpose, a mission, a vision, a national goal. Just from the beginning, as they were meant to be God's instruments to show the nations how good God was. And therefore, through this, the entire world would come to know their God. But after a long and difficult history, often in a land that's not their own, sometimes under the reign of Persians, sometimes under the Greeks, and for a long time under the rule of Roman. When all hope seems lost, under perpetual Roman reign, the same God sends Jesus to rescue his people. Part two, Jesus. Jesus was Jewish through and through. He was a descendant of the line of David, uh, he was born of, in 4 BC into an Israel ruled by King Herod, uh, who's a pro-Roman vassal king whose claim to the throne and, and claim to Jewish identity was kind of similar to Donald Trump's dodgy adherence to family values. Jesus spent several years conducting a widely popular ministry of teachings of wisdom, where many would come with their sick and lay them at his feet and he would heal them. When Jesus' ministry was popular, but it wasn't popularist, he made many enemies and powerful ones at that, primarily the religious establishment. Uh, these enemies were the primarily the religious establishment of Jerusalem. And in April and in 33 AD, Jesus came to the city of his critics to face his fate at the time of Passover. Now, uh, we got to understand at Passover, Jerusalem was a tinderbox of political activity because everything the Passover meal said about you, that you're a free people, that you're in your own land, that David's sons are on the throne, was completely at odds with everything that they saw around them. They were still under a Roman vassal king. David's descendants were not on the throne. They were not in a land their own, and yet they were still in captivity. Jesus came to this city at that Passover festival with a grand welcoming. Many from the city waved palm branches at him, saying, this man ought to be our king. But that week, Jesus' teaching and actions, primarily a one-man riot in the temple, led the Jewish religious establishment to say that this man must be disposed of. But you've got to understand that disposing of such a man in that time was difficult. In an age before video and photos, he was hard to identify, let alone get to because he always had his disciples close around him. What they needed was an inside man. That man was Judas. On the night that he was betrayed, he made arrangements to share the Passover meal with his disciples. But in the middle of that meal, he did something unique. In the middle of the meal, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body which is for you. 
And then a little later, he took one cup of wine and he said, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins, which is poured out for you and for many. And not long after that, after a bogus trial and prisoner abuse, Jesus died and he was crucified outside of Jerusalem. So cool story, but all for nothing if Jesus didn't actually die, right? Uh, Richard Dawkins, Professor Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusions, makes the claim on page 122 in my copy that you can mount a strong case that Jesus never existed. And he quotes the work of Professor G.A. Wells from the University of London. Now that seems great, but G.A. Wells is a professor of German, not a professor of ancient history. It's like getting a professor of philosophy to talk about medicine. They're knowledgeable, but that's not their area. Rather, one ancient historian scholar uh, called Dr. John Dixon from Macquarie University in Australia has said uh, publicly on the ABC that if he finds, and if someone else can show him, uh, one ancient historian in a department that does not think that Jesus existed, he'll eat a page of his Bible. We're at five years and we're still counting because so far no one has come up with the goods. Rather, uh, Professor Ed Sanders from Duke University says that these are the things which we could say existed in Jesus. He was born in 4 BC near the time of the death of Herod the Great. He spent his childhood adult and early years in Nazareth. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He called disciples. He taught in towns. He preached the kingdom of God. Around 30 AD, he went to Jerusalem for Passover, created a disturbance in the temple, executed on order of Pontius Pilate. He died and was crucified. And after that, a community forms which believes that he rose again. Impressive list, right? But what does that mean? I think it means that we have to come to terms that Jesus actually existed and that he actually died. We have to come to terms with that he actually lived and therefore have to have an answer to who Jesus is. And that question hit me like a train. 16-year-old pimply face me, uh, just deciding not to be a golf professional, realised I didn't have an answer to that question. And the reason why I didn't have an answer to that question is because of what it could mean. If I really did acknowledge that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again, that means that I'd have to change my life dramatically. Now, who wants to do a thing like that? But being unable to escape the implications of history, being challenged by the person of Jesus as I read more about him in the Bible, unwillingly, yet almost inevitably, it seemed like, I acknowledged that Jesus really was real. And so I bowed my knee to him and started to call him my king and saviour. One of the temptations we have, I think, is to just stop short of that conclusion and just say, you know what, Jesus was just a really nice guy. Couldn't think of anyone nicer. Great guy, nice one, no problems with Jesus. But the problem of that is that nice guys don't get crucified. 
one of the criteria that ancient historians have is the criterion of crucifiability for Jesus. Do our theories and picture of Jesus, is it actually able to be crucified? Here's the thing, nice guys don't get crucified. And what changed my mind in the end is being confronted with that continual picture of Jesus, the crucified God, who would be risen to new life again. And so I changed. I put my trust and I decided to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. Part three, the meaning of Jesus' death. Well, what could Jesus' death mean? Clearly at the dinner table, he was saying, the meaning of this meal is affected in my death, uh, which means I think at least three things. First, Jesus' death deals with the sin problem. More than anything, as people who decide to live separate to and apart from God, we need that trespass forgiven, that sin forgiven. We need the penalty cancelled, our slate wiped clean. Because for people who've decided to live separate to and apart from God, only God's separation and judgment awaits. And so when Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus saying that his death wipes that clean. Instead of empty, there is peace and forgiveness. Jesus' death has dealt with the sin problem. Second, Jesus' death addresses the slavery problem. Sin in the Bible is not merely an action, but it's also a power, a power which makes us its victims and yet also subdues us into its perpetrators. Jesus' death dethrones the power of sin, banishes its power from us so that we can live for God and in turn live in the freedom and the joy and the hope of knowing our Creator. Jesus' death addresses the slavery of sin problem. Third, Jesus' death addresses the people problem. The Passover meal, more than anything, said for the Jewish people that you are a people gathered by God. What Thanksgiving Day is for Americans, what Independence Day is for Indians, what Anzac Day is for Australians and New Zealanders. When Jesus said, do this meal in memory of me, he is gathering a new people around his death that are eager and willing to follow their God. Jesus' death addresses the people problem. And how does Jesus invite us to share in the benefits of his death? Well, he doesn't make the decision for us. He calls us. He invites us to do that. He calls us to place our faith in him or to trust in Jesus or to entrust our lives to him, to entrust our whole life to Jesus, our Savior, and therefore entrust our direction to Jesus, our King. That is how we share in the benefits of his death. A German monk called Martin Luther once described uh, Jesus' death kind of like a great exchange, like a, like a marriage. Uh, when I got married to my wife, Beck, uh, let it be known that I didn't have that much. Now, I wasn't in debt, thankfully, uh, but, you know, I was just a humble social worker. I didn't have a whole lot of money. I didn't have a whole lot of assets to bring to this relationship. 
Meg, on the other hand, was a very successful in her own professional area of dentistry. Uh, she had a lot more than I had. But when we got married, actually, that didn't matter that much because everything I had in its minuteness was actually given to Beck, and everything Beck had was now shared with me. In the same way, when we entrust ourselves and our lives to Jesus, he gets everything that we had of our sin, its penalty, uh, its condemnation and judgment for God. And yet he gives us everything that he had. Peace with God, adopted into the family of God, the right to be called brothers and sisters of Jesus, a fresh start, forgiveness, holy and pleasing to our God. And that is exactly what happens when we entrust ourselves to him. We give him everything we have, and Jesus gives us everything that he had. And so the action to become a Christian isn't to come clean, isn't to come having lots of assets and wealth. It's to come knowing your need. It's to come before God knowing that you actually have nothing to bring to this situation except a whole lot of thanks and a whole lot of gratitude for the Jesus who gave up everything he had to give it to you. Later, Peter the Apostle would, would say it like this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here are the take-home points for this meal of redemption. Jesus' death accomplishes what Israel was always meant to do. To follow Jesus is to accept his death as saviour. And to follow Jesus and to trust our direction to him as our Lord. Now the implications of what that means for our lives now and the future will all be in our final meal, the new creation.